Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with Ben Andrew from AWS and we spoke at length about Ben's journey into security, but also his most recently appointed role. We discuss his opinion on cloud adoption and the benefits to hybrid cloud as well. Ben discusses how customers can secure their applications in the cloud, as well as talking around how AWS is helping to assist with customers doing this. If you're keen to learn more about Ben, then this episode is for you, and please keep on listening. Okay, so Ben, before we sort of jumped on to do the recording of this podcast, we're just sort of saying that it's been quite some time since you and I originally met. Ultimately, you don't live in Australia, clearly, but it was really good when I met you, actually. And then I think we were trying to record the podcast for like a year And I feel like every guest recently I've been saying that too as well. So it's really great to finally have you on here to talk about you, your experience, what you guys are actually doing uh, over at AWS. So um, before we jump into your knowledge and your insight, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you talk our audience through about where you started to what you're kind of doing now? Absolutely. When I was in college, I was studying to be a youth pastor of all things and I didn't want to uh, work for the church to, to earn an income that way. I wanted to have, you know, an income coming from the outside, if you were. And my dad had this way of asking people, helping guide them to career choices. He always asked, do you want to work with your head, your mind, or do you want to work with your hands? And so I was like, well, I kind of both, but I like to work with my, with my mind and talk to people. And, but I really liked technology. I liked working with computers. And, and of course, back then it was a Commodore 64 when I was in like 12 or 13. And, but then when I was, in college, I was using MS-DOS, like 286 computers, and really just enjoyed it. And it, it made sense to me. And so I studied some computer books and eventually looked for a role as a network engineer. And I found a company in Portland, Oregon area that was helping customers build computer networks. And so I applied and uh, had started taking the Microsoft's uh, Certified Systems Engineering courses. And eventually I uh, got my certification, got hired there. And and worked for about four years uh, building data centers. And and uh, this was before online banking was really prevalent. Most banks didn't actually have their own online banking. So uh, an area that I spent a lot of focus on was was building a, a service, kind of a colo, kind of a shared service for banks to uh, be able to service their customers online. And uh, did a lot of connecting small businesses to the internet and redoing TCP IP and, you know, because they would, you know, use internal address ranges, uh, use public address ranges internally, and then end up causing issues when they went online. So anyway, I learned all about networking and, and spent several years doing that. And then I was challenged when every time Microsoft would release a new operating system, there would be all these customers that would call with all these questions. And it was, it seemed a lot like a lot of, uh, a lot of work to know everything to be kind of a general network engineer type. So I thought, well, security sounds more interesting. Let me try that. So, and it was probably 1998 time frame. Time frame. I was uh, still working as a as a network engineer, but I was focusing on software deployment and deploying uh, McAfee antivirus software and displacing competitors' tools and things like that. And worked worked with McAfee as a partner. And then eventually, in uh, early 2000, they hired me to, to do professional services for them. So that's how I ended up in security and started out as a you know, continuing as a consultant slash professional services, but really focused on helping customers with their journey of securing their environment. 
and uh, eventually had the pleasure of working at over a third of the Fortune 100 customers in person and learned a lot. I was able to help a lot of companies with you know, any, anything from endpoint security to network security to uh, risk and compliance, firewalls, all of that. Uh, eventually specialized in management, security management. So the larger environments that needed to manage all of their uh, systems and users and application security across their environments. So that became kind of my specialty would go out and help these really large organizations, banks and, you know, credit card companies and auto manufacturers help them uh, to upgrade and, and to prevent outbreaks in their environments. So got to experience some really fun things. Uh, worked, I remember working at the United States Mint and dealing with uh, an outbreak of malware that hit them and their internet was offline. And so I had to fly out to Washington, D.C. And I still remember being able to log into the exchange server that was running at Fort Knox. So it was cool to just the concept of actually working on something so high profile. Mm -hmm. I was like, don't screw it up, you know, but uh, great experiences doing ProServe. And then I moved from that into a product management role at McAfee and built the virtualization product portfolio. And uh, we did a lot of work with VMware and Citrix and Microsoft and, and spent lots of time with customers as they moved into sort of the virtualization world and built optimized security to not use as many resources to improve VM density. That was kind of the focus. And, and then from there, I went into a director role of alliances and eventually put the McAfee product portfolio into AWS Marketplace as a partner. And then while I was in the process of doing that, they reached out and asked if I would come and run the category of security for the marketplace online store for software for third parties. Mm -hmm. So I joined in 2015 to, uh, to run the security category. It was pretty small back then. It was a uh, marketplace was only a couple of years old. And so we didn't have very many security products. I think it was about, uh, about 150 security products at the time. And uh, from there just worked with a lot of the security companies and, and helped them to see and understand the reason to make their software available to cloud customers. And uh, eventually they added more and more categories to me and eventually gave me a team. And so for about the last five years, I spent uh, focused on business development and category management. So networking, security, open source, operating systems, et cetera. So that was the uh, area of focus for a while. And then just recently, I took a different role and I can uh, chat about that as well if we have time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you said earlier that I'm really interested in is you said talking about taking people from traditional banking to online banking. I'm curious to know what was the sort of behavioral change that went with that? And because we are going to be talking about adoption to cloud, I I'm just really uh, interested to know, like, were people really adverse to the idea? Were they like, oh, no, going on the Internet, that'll never be a thing? Like, I'm just I'm just intrigued by how people adopted to that way of operating. Yeah, it was really interesting, like just the concept of of customers doing banking transactions at the time, it was only over the phone. So phone banking was really common, but it was all done through dial tones. Mm -hmm. So customers would, you know, call in and, you know, type in their account number and their pin, and then they would move mm -hmm. move money around and things like that. And so the concept of of them being able to access, you know, their all of their statements and all their transactions and, and even begin to actually pay bills online. It was, it was just ground groundbreaking at the time. <laughs> yes. Um, it was, it's funny to think about it now because every bank does it and it's just kind of a normal thing. But at the time, because none of the banks had the capability to do it, then there was this concern about, well, if we're hiring a third party to do this for us, and the company that I worked for was called Check Free. Uh, they were a customer of, of Icon that I was working at. And 
the the fear was, well, how do we stay within regulatory uh, control and compliance when the customer's data has to go outside of our four walls? So that was really early days of figuring out how to do, you know, NDAs and partnership and opt-ins and all the all the stuff that is fairly normal now. It's pretty interesting. And so when you said when you moved across uh, to AWS, working the marketplace, and you said that they started off with X amount of categories in that group, but you were doing a lot of business development. So how, how did you go about sort of changing the conversation in the market to to sort of scale up those categories? Well, I think a lot of the misconception that vendors had, in, including where I was at, was that the cloud was just you know, a Linux operating system or, you know, and so people will be like, oh, well, you know, Linux isn't as big of an attack surface as Windows. So how important is putting security? A lot of customers even still don't do a lot to secure their Linux systems. So, you know, just educating the vendors on the, the way that the cloud was different from full stack development mm-hmm. and the concept of systems being ephemeral and customers don't want to pay for systems that are not running why should they pay for software that you know is is only running eight hours a day or or it's only running and bursting or auto scaling and so you know educating them on just the way that software was developed and how customers wanted to pay in in an opex model based on usage kind of like a phone bill was was really a lot of the conversation because they just simply didn't understand really how the cloud works so Mm-hmm. Telling stories to CEOs and heads of product and heads of marketing was really common to educating them on why, you know, because they would say, well, we don't have customers coming to us and saying we're not going to buy our your, our security software if you don't make it available in the cloud. They, they didn't have those conversations yet. So it was, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit mm-hmm. to give them an understanding. And then, you know, over time, the the benefit of one vendor in, in a given use case going online and, and making their product available, then it, it caused momentum for the other vendors because they didn't want their competitors to be available and they weren't available. So mm-hmm. we kind of were able to work each other, work them off each other a little bit, but um, <laughs> it was, it was fun. Some, some great conversations and some vendors I felt uh, really never quite got it, you know, over years, two, three, four years of conversations that it would be the same every time. Well, how many customers are you going to like, well, you know, we're, we're really not, developing a co-sell platform that we weren't at the time. Of course, we have significantly changed it and we are now, but at the time it was more just, don't you want to show your customers that you are cloudy? You know, you were, <laughs> you know, you, you want them to see you as a customer, a company that's going to help them through this journey that they're facing because they, you know, customers build relationships with the vendors they work with. They build relationships with systems integrators and managed service providers for years and then they educate all their workforce on these applications. So they're well invested and it's expensive in a lot of different ways for them to change to different vendors products. So it, it benefits everyone all the way around. There's not enough, as you know, there's not enough cybersecurity resources to help all the customers that need to move to the cloud. So instead of just saying, yeah, don't use that vendor anymore. Our approach was come alongside the vendor, educate them, bring them along because they have a following, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the question some of our solution architects would com- commonly ask me would be like, you know, does XYZ vendor, are they really relevant in, you know, a modernized application architecture? And I'm like, well, that's not really the question that I like to ask. I don't like to ask, are they relevant or not? I like to ask, what, how, how can they help their following? How can they help their existing customer base with this journey? 
And, and you know, that, that to me is the, the, the point is not use AWS services. The point is help the customers through the journey. So by any means necessary. So that's kind of the approach that I took. And, you know, it, it seemed to work uh, over the course of almost five years. We now have just in the security category alone, over 1200 individual product listings. And I think we only had 150 when I started. So there was wow. a lot, a lot of growth. Change. Yeah. So when you're sort of at the 150 mark and you spoke before about usage, like only paying for things that you use, right? How did people sort of take that conversation? Were they taken back by like, that's not going to be a thing. That's not possible. Like, how does this work? Were they still very set in their old ways of like, no, I hear what you're saying, Ben, but I'm just going to still do what I've always been doing. Yeah. So a couple of angles there. One of them was the vendors that were pushing back and saying, well, we don't want to change our pricing model for our software because it's too complicated to figure out. It requires changes to our back office systems. And we we only sell software, you know, upfront annual contracts. We don't, we don't know how to do it, but it was, so some of it was fear. Some of it was too many systems to change. Um, and the other was just simply, we don't hear a lot of, a lot of companies only make these types of changes if the customers demand it. And that's pretty common. So what ended up happening to cause the, there to be a shift was more and more customers started to demand software to be available in an OPEX model. Mm-hmm. And there were, I, I still remember it was probably 2016 early that, that early where a, a big healthcare company uh, had, had just one of their head of engineering had just agreed to a million dollar contract of an endpoint security product and through marketplace. And this is before we had like a procurement system integration like Coupa and Ariba and all that. So the end, the head of engineering had said, yeah, I want to buy that. But their entire model, all the software this customer bought was OPEX. Mm-hmm. And so this one vendor that wasn't ready yet to sell it in a, in a pay-as-you-go model or, or usage-based, they pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do it. And so the, the engineer had to actually, when they went to finance and said, yeah, I, I, I bought this software and he finance team was like, you're not approved to buy that. It's above your, it's above what you're approved to buy and it's not OPEX. So it doesn't follow our model. So you need to cancel the order. And so I, I remember getting a phone call from the customer going, I, I, I don't have permission to buy this. How do I return it? How do I cancel it? And then I had to have the conversation with the vendor to say, this is what happened. And they're like, are you kidding? We thought that, you know, they were just kind of in disbelief like this. People are really buying OPEX only I'm like, yeah, like there's a set of customers that that they're already there. And they're early adopters, but now it's really common. So that was a big part of the of the conversation shift. And then the other part was just again more just educating them on on the the way that our services are sold. So the vendors that that really provided the most options for the for the customers were the ones that came in and said, "How do you sell your software? How do you sell your services?" And we want to do it the same way. And so that just made it easier for the customers. And and then those vendors ended up becoming the sort of the front runners with, you know, longer term relationships with us because they, they just really, they didn't question it. They just said, all right, if, if that's the way you're doing it, we want to follow it. And it's, it's built some really strong, long lasting relationships with a lot of these vendors. It's been pretty cool. So do you think that over time, do you think people are sort of questioning stuff less? I mean, ultimately when you're doing something different, people are always taken back by that or they're not really sure about it. But then over time that conversation changes, but you spoke before about these front runners do you think that 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 sort of grown in terms of people just adapting to how things are, or there is still that level of uh, pushback, perhaps because it's I don't know unfamiliar territory. Maybe not so now, but traditionally speaking. 
Yeah, you know, I think the the challenge that that I see often is is that there's still a lot of vendors are waiting for customers to demand instead of getting out in front of it. And it frustrates me because when I when I get on the phone call with a with a security vendor, like, like let's take identity for for example, mm-hmm. and they you know maybe they're doing single sign on, maybe they're doing two factor authentication, maybe they're doing zero trust. You know, there's a lot of different options. But the first question that I had to the vendors when I would talk to them would be, okay, how do customers use your product next to AWS identity services? Because AWS has identity access management, has SSO. Like, mm-hmm. where does your product end and, and the AWS solution begin or vice versa? And they're like, well, you know, we don't really have an answer to that. I'm like, well, I would think that would be like the first question a customer would ask. So mm-hmm. why aren't you providing this for them ahead of time, instead of making every conversation come back to, well, how do we answer this question? I don't know. It just mm-hmm. mind boggled me to, to be like, why don't you just give people the information that they're looking for? Yeah. The, the vendors that have done well are the ones that have said, instead of limiting their addressable market mm-hmm. by just to the lift and shift customer or, or just to the hybrid customer, they're saying, what are all the ways customers want to buy? And I'm going to invest and I'm going to be seen as a cloudy, you know, company. And it, it, it literally works. It does take time, but mm-hmm. it, it really does work. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm asking that because I'd like to sort of jump into your opinion on discussing the adoption to cloud. So more from a client perspective, because as you are well aware of, there's still a lot of different varied opinions on this topic. Uh, and so I'm really keen to sort of get your thoughts on what you're sort of seeing in this space. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and it's it's interesting that there was a, an analyst report that I heard on, in December that said that 88% of IT spend was still on premises. And wow. it kind of okay. shocked me to think that only 12% and, you know, the number of customers that AWS has already, it's in the millions. And, but you're right, there are the early adopters that are, and these are public public references, so I can share them, but, you know, like Capital One and Disney and Intuit, that, that they're moving thousands of applications. And some vendors have, some customers have different motivation to the, you know, the primary motive of, of why they're moving is to, you know, in the case of Capital One, they're very public about this, is that they felt that they could be more secure in the cloud than they could be on premises. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rob Alexander said that at reInvent in 2016. And and they've actually, their motivation was to shut down all the data centers. And they've been mostly su- successful with that. They're nearly done. So the other companies, their motivation is just to move applications to the cloud. And, and a lot of the reason people move applications is for the ability to access them everywhere mm-hmm. and the, to save cost on infrastructure and provisioning so they're not over-provisioning when there isn't customer demand for it. And that happens, you know, I've even worked with vendors and said, hey, customers want to buy SaaS. We recommend it. You know, you should consider making your solution easier to use and build a SaaS platform. But if they don't do it right and they they just build it, you know, without leveraging, without without at least utilizing basic things like auto scaling, um, then they end up spending too much money on the, on the infrastructure if they don't take the time to do it right. right. So we have teams now that'll, we have a team called SaaS Factory and that's exactly what they do is they help companies to do it in a well-architected way that, that is going to leverage the cost benefits. But, you know, the, I think the apprehension of the cloud is going away uh, over mm-hmm. time, but there are new, you know, there's an interesting new feature that I, I like to talk about when it comes to, you know, the apprehension that some companies have had for using 
you know, if you just take the concept of SaaS software for a minute, mm-hmm. software as a service not running in the customer's own um, on-premise environment, and in most cases until recently, SaaS software that a customer was accessing, they would have to uh, connect to that application either either even with a single sign-on or, or two, you know, a, a two-factor authentication. There's still the the user's identity and login information was was going over the internet, and also application log data and so forth was coming back over the internet report data and things like that. And so a lot of customers would have apprehension to using SaaS applications because of those reasons. So as, as the AWS networking stack has evolved, we've built capability that allow customers to access SaaS software without any data going over the corporate, over the public internet. So we have a feature in our, uh, in our EC2 advanced networking called private link. And what it what allows you to do as a vendor, if you're running your SaaS application in AWS and maybe you're using multiple regions, multiple availability zones, so you're accessible all over the all over the world, customers are also building virtual private clouds in AWS. And so we created this wormhole that allows the customer to access a vendor's application and, and none of the data has to go outside the backbone. So it's kind of a brilliant way to solve a phishing problem or a data problem. But it's these types of features in the networking stack that that remove apprehension mm-hmm. and make it easier for adoption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear you. So talk to me about this 88%. Like that seems pretty high. Um, I'm just curious. Like what were some of the insights that were sort of derived out of that report? Like do you still feel like it's fear? It's uh, they they feel like there's a lack of control. Perhaps like w- was there any sort of key insights there that you could sort of talk about? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. You know, it's actually kind of an interesting segue to kind of what I'm doing now is mm-hmm. is really a lot of it, it a lot of the concern or, or apprehension comes down to just where do I start? Okay. How how do I do it? How do I, you know, I know the benefits of using cloud, but I've heard horror stories if if you don't design it right, it costs more money or whatever. Where do I start? How do I do it? And you know, back to the cybersecurity challenge of not enough people. Mm-hmm. There simply are not enough professional services resources, there are not enough systems integrators that know cloud well enough yet they're coming along and more and more of them are building expertise cloud centers of excellence and helping customers but it, the challenge i believe is a lot of customers don't want to be um have to create a custom bespoke project for every single thing they that they're doing with the cloud they just want to take advantage of best practices and patterns and and why don't you tell me how all the other companies are doing it or give me prescriptive guidance? A lot of customers are just asking for guide me. And, you know, historically, our solution architects and professional services teams would spend a lot of time with customers and give them multiple options. And even in the marketplace with third party vendors, we were Switzerland. Like you, you want to pick a, 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 a vendor, a firewall vendor, there's 250 of them. Mm-hmm. Pick, pick your best, whatever you want. But more and more customers were asking us, well, Tell us which ones to use. Tell us which ones other people are using. Mm-hmm. Tell us which ones are designed well for the cloud. Tell us which mm-hmm. ones are going to protect us better. And, you know, that goes into things that we were never doing. We're never doing efficacy testing of one security product to another. And, you know, we were relying on ratings, you know, to to solve those sorts of things. But so anyway, the, the point is, is that I think a lot of customers are still just looking for guidance of how to take that first step. And because it is a mind shift of I'm moving away from managing physical hardware and, and servers and racks and databases. Mm-hmm. And now I'm learning how to how to do similar things, but it's all online and I'm using a console and I'm using APIs and, mm-hmm. and it's all JSON and, and Terraform. Like, where do I start? And so 
you know, obviously a, a cloud guru and vendors training vendors like that are coming out and AWS has released a lot of training and certification, made it free just to help people. But I think it's, it's still just a, you know, if your entire staff doesn't know AWS, where do you start? So what, uh, you know, just kind of as I also in my own career was ready for a challenge, you know, you, you ever get to the place where you're, you could kind of feel like you could do your job in your sleep a little bit. So <laughs> yes. I, was, <laughs> I was a little bit, you know, it wasn't that there wasn't more to do and more vendors to talk to. It was like, okay, I, you know, we, we'd gotten to the point that I'd kind of seen it all and heard it all. And, and, you know, so I spent the last couple of years in category management, really doing a lot of recruiting and hiring and bringing on a, a real strong staff of BD and category managers that really were deep in their, their given security background. So that was really helpful to bring those folks on board. And now, now that we have a really strong team and I was kind of redundant, you know, so worked myself out of a job a little bit. So I was working with my, um, my VP and I was like, Hey, what's the big challenge that we really need to be focusing on right now? And he's like, bottom line, it's taking too long for customers to move to the cloud. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out invent and simplify. We have, you know, lots of services. I think it's almost 200 individual services are available now. So that, that in and of itself, it's great. The innovation is great. The options are great, but so many customers are just asking for prescriptive guidance. So we, uh, we started a project that, um, that I'm working on now, which is basically building frameworks that have common patterns of reference architectures and, you know, stitching together both native services and third-party software so that customers ultimately, when it's all finished and running and, and fully functional, customers will be able to uh, sort of self-service pick, you know, like I'm going to build hybrid, I'm going to build, um, you know, DevOps, or I'm going to build you know, procurement or all the different sort of business functions that eventually move and, and, you know, morph into either running in the cloud or running in a hybrid model. A lot of customers will be in hybrid. We see that for a long time. So, but just making it easier for them to build and operate in the cloud without having to hire professional services, mm -hmm. or maybe, maybe they'll hire ProServe for part of it, but for the bulk of what they're trying to do, enough customers have done it that we can, you know, encapsulate those learnings in in a framework with deployable resources. So the customer can just pick it, say, this is where I'm at, this is where I'm going. And then it gives them prescriptive guidance of how to get from step A to B to C along the way. So that's really the, the thought behind really what what I've jumped into for the last couple of months. And, mm -hmm. and we're seeing just a lot of really good uh, excitement from not only the customers, but also from our, our field technical field teams, because they're just, you know, we just simply don't have enough people and there's not enough, enough solution architects to go around. You know, I think less than uh, less than 10% of customers have access to a solution architect. And so how can we take that learning and make it more available and, you know, just make it easier. So that's really the kind of the thought behind what, what I'm focusing on now. Mm -hmm. So let's okay. So let's sort of talk about um, so we discuss sort of people's mindset or perhaps their reasoning in terms of their fears. What about sort of the hybrid space? Like, what are you sort of seeing there in terms of adoption? Do you think that people feel like, well, I mean, this will depend on what sort of uh, what they're doing in terms of each individual business. But do you feel like people think like it's an incremental step, perhaps because they're sort of moving away from like an on-prem model to maybe a hybrid to then maybe full cloud adoption? Is, I mean, that would ultimately depend on each individual company, but are you sort of seeing that as well? Because again, like 
it is like you talked on before, like it is overwhelming for people uh, and they fear that like, where do I start? Are you sort of seeing that that's sort of a, a bit of a trajectory that people are doing or? Yeah, I think, I think what happens is it just takes time, right? Like if you think about yeah. a lot of these big financial institutions that have thousands of applications, like it's, you know, and they're, and they're just getting started. Right. So, you know, there, there's the, some of this changes as well in how applications are um, designed and architected. So if you think about best practices for application development, it's multi availability zone. Like anytime there's an, a failure or an outage on any service, it's 95% of the time it's, it's contained in one availability zone within one region. So each region has at least two to three availability zones. Each availability zone has at least two to three physical data centers. So mm-hmm. for resiliency, you know, we recommend that they, that they build an application so that if one AZ goes down, it's, it's still available. Right. So mm-hmm. in that, if you just takes, uh, you know, just traditional network, uh, the, the traditional corporate network approach to accessing applications. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get access to them? Well, especially with remote work, there's, mm-hmm. there's typically a VPN, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, maybe some sort of a token, hardware, software token, whatever. So that method of getting onto the corporate network so that you can then get access to the applications, which are sitting behind a firewall, um, that is is morphing and that mm-hmm. is going away. And that's where, as you've seen, you know, new types of security solutions coming out like zero trust and identity-based security um, that it's really all about like uh, secure access service edge type solutions that are, they're looking at how, how do, how do, a, a, how does an end user get access to an application no matter where the components of that application are. And instead of them accessing a network, they're putting the security and the policy into the identity of the user and then not just the user, but the device and the connection and the location and leveraging relationships with, with SIMs and, and UEB, UEBA solutions so that it's real time monitoring the connection and deciding, it, you know, what we're not only just looking at the behavior of the person, but we're looking at has the connection changed, has the device changed and do we need to harden? Do we need to change a policy on the fly? So, mm-hmm. Solutions like AppGate, I don't know if you've heard of AppGate, but they, they've built, the, built this kind of new concept where you don't really need to get onto the network anymore to get your applications. And because of that, applications, as they morph from hybrid, as they morph from sort of on-prem to hybrid to eventually all-in cloud, mm-hmm. pieces of that application might be all over the place. And it, the idea is it doesn't even matter anymore. It's kind of more of a mesh mm-hmm. where, where you define the, the components of the application, wherever they are. And you give the policy to the user. The the user doesn't even see the applications unless they have permission to see them. So everything's dark. And so then if you also then take like a Palo Alto Network Spot, a company recently called Apparetto, and they're roll, rolling it into their Prisma Cloud stack. And Apparetto does a similar thing with, with, with what to what AppGate does, but their focus is on the zero trust, like the least privilege rights between each component of an application. So you've got the user and their access to the application, and then you have the application components itself being designed with security in mind. So full DevSecOps, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but anyway, all that to say, um, as, as, as these new types of security solutions are available, I, we're, I believe more and more companies are going to move away from the corporate network concept. Mm-hmm. And, and as they do that, then hybrid can, you know, there really doesn't have to be an end date to hybrid. Like people can use, 
you know, if they if they feel like they're going to get a better price on, you know, storage, uh, like glacier service or, you know, maybe they're going to use a multi-fleet, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like the, the customer can access the application no matter where it is. It can be architected in a mesh model and but it's still secure. So, um, you know, is hybrid here to stay? I, I mean, there's always going to be people with physical laptops and phones and you know accessing things from wherever they are. So there's mm-hmm. always going to be an on-prem component, mm-hmm. you know, and, and crown jewels are moving to the cloud now more and more. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think that it's just, a, it's just an evolution. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that it's as much apprehension though, as I do just lack of training or knowledge and mm-hmm. experience. So if we can encapsulate experience and, you know, bottle that up and put it in a box, ship it to people, you know, I think that that will help, but I don't know if I answered your question about hybrid. I think it's just, uh, it does depend on how applications are developed and, and the priority that customers have to move them, I think. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree with in terms of when you're talking about the evolution. Um, so one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is some of the key components of, of hybrid cloud benefits. Now, I know maybe touch on like three of them. So, and I'd love to get your thoughts on these in detail. Uh, so one of those is accelerate innovation business continuity, and then scalability and speed of response. I'm keen to get your thoughts on each of those. Mm-hmm. Well, accelerating innovation, you, know, you just think about the number of available services. So I, I think hybrid is is really just help. Where does the customer go from here? Because they're starting where they are and, they're, and where they are is applications are on-premise, data is on-premise. So, you know, the benefits of moving applications to the cloud are you know, availability around the world, breadth of services, you know, availability, you know, they, they can build it small to grow dynamically. You know, Netflix is a great example. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't watch movies during the day unless you're, you know, uh, a maid cleaning a house or something like this, but, you know, it's nights and weekends, right? So that, that, uh, the ability to scale is really important. Um, accelerating innovation, just the number of available services, the amount not having to buy uh, resources, servers, and wait for them to show up and put them on a rack. It takes months and months. And then how many mm-hmm. do you buy? You know, like trying to predict how many customers you're going to have is, is, you know, one of the biggest challenges, right? So mm-hmm. the, to be able to leverage the cloud platform with free or spot instances or, you know, little to no cost or pay as you go where you're, you're paying for, you know, usage of the application and so if, if no one's using the application, it doesn't cost you very much to innovate, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the ability for people to try new ideas is really powerful. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get permission, build a business case, wait months and months, and then the business opportunity goes away. You just jump in and go. So, you know, so business continuity, I mean, just the availability of functions and and being able to provide customers with visibility and, you know, data as, as easy as you you know, leveraging the edge services, I think is really important. It's not just about the regions, but there's hundreds of edge locations. And mm-hmm. there's even the, with hybrid, there's some benefits of, of AWS outposts where we can actually put some components of applications directly in a customer's on-prem environment. So it's, it's morphing, you know, we're adding more and more services, you know, with VMware cloud or customers that don't even need to learn anything about AWS to be able to expand their uh, footprint into the cloud in a hybrid model just by leveraging VMware cloud because they stay on the VMware stack and they sign up for VMware cloud. And as they expand, 
they run out of on-prem resources, it automatically expands to AWS under the covers and they don't even know how it's happening, but it's just, it's just dynamic. So that's another way that we're helping people where they are. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the scalability and speed? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as customers are building new applications or migrating them, there's there's so many different resources available, but so many different types of resources are available for them. You know, it started with just virtual compute instances, and now we have, you know, so many different compute instance types. But as as we make it even easier for customers to not even have to manage the um, underlying EC2 instances to run containers. Now they can just run containers as a service uh, with Fargate and they can run functions as a service with Lambda. So they don't, you know, more, less and less work to manage the underlying infrastructure, which allows them to scale. You know, you build an application that requires a full stack. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even with auto scaling, you're still paying for a lot of resources to mm-hmm. scale that. But if you can, if you can des- design the architecture with, uh, microservices in mind, leveraging containers and and Lambda and microservices like that, you, you're able to scale in, in, infinitely, you know, any any portion of the application. There's a security vendor who, I don't know if you've heard of ShieldX, but they, uh, former uh, McAfee NSP uh, architect who went off and started his own business and, and they built their entire uh, network security platform, IPS firewall, mm-hmm. leveraging containers. And instead of the customer having to build out multiple stacks and pay for lots of uh, auto scaling, they built scalability into each each of the each of the portions of the application is in a separate container, and that each of each container then scales on its own. So it's really des- it's really designed to take advantage of of that microservices scalability and uh, costs a lot less money when they're dealing with high volume environments. So. And then speed, if you think about also just the access to the market, like think about it, a lot of customers are, are really software companies and, and they're mm-hmm. making their applications available all around the world. And the speed of reaching the world and the world markets by <clears throat> by rolling out into a new region across the world and having it where when they build an application, it it's it's built on a template that they can just move around to any region or any availability zone around the world. And and I remember when the CEO and president of F5 got up on stage at uh, Santa Clara Summit a couple of years ago and said that they were able to put their product in every region in the world. And then also they made it available in Marketplace. And every country in the world was able to access their software overnight, mm-hmm. whereas they didn't have to build a sales team and all those things. So there's a lot of areas where customers can make those applications available all around the world and, and reach customers that they would have never had access to before. Okay, so now that we've sort of discussed sort of the key components of uh, of hybrid cloud benefits, let's can we dive into more talking about the uh, the security side of things and how um, you guys are actually going about securing applications in hybrid deployment? Absolutely. So you probably heard of the shared responsibility model of security with AWS and. You know, just it's a it's a common thing to go over because when when a customer is taking advantage of uh, leveraging the cloud itself, the cloud is is you know the AWS is responsible for the security of the cloud itself, mm-hmm. from the physical data centers to the hypervisor, to who has access to you know enter commands on behalf of customers, and and so all of that is is the responsibility of AWS. And as a customer of AWS, 
uh, they benefit from the fact that the environment is safe and their tenant is is isolated from another tenant and no other tenants are going to be able to see their data. And they also benefit from the fact that all of our services are encrypted and the customer controls where their data goes. They We don't move data. You know, people have the need to have data stay within a certain geography or a certain country. So that's why we offer regions in, in different countries. Like take, take Germany, for example, we have a Frankfurt region and it's, you know, European privacy law is different in different countries. And so it's important that data is owned by the customer. Customer has control over it. And then so the infrastructure, the software, the networking, the facilities that run the cloud services, all that is responsibility of AWS. But the customer has a responsibility to secure what's inside of their own virtual private cloud, their EC2 instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason that's important is, is that we don't look inside. AWS doesn't look inside a customer's EC2 instance or their S3 bucket yeah. to see what that data is because that's their data. They're responsible for it. So it's really important that they know that that shared controls are important. Patch management, configuration management, awareness and training, all these things are the responsibility of the customer. So the customer then can leverage an entire ecosystem of third-party software to help them secure their data, secure their users, secure their identities. And so that's really why we have the partner ecosystem available Mm -hmm. from the partner network that does competency testing and validation that, you know, the customer's data is going to be safe if they're using this vendor's product. And so all that, but, but ultimately also AWS has, and is continuing to build cloud security solutions to, to additionally help the customers with their part of the responsibility. So um, we have a, a, a set of strategic prevent, detect, respond, remediate solutions mm-hmm. um, that are available and, and more and more, uh, is being built there. So uh, you probably heard at reInvent in December, we announced Amazon Detective, and that was an acquisition of Squirrel, which is a threat hunting platform. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a solution that's called Security Hub, and that provides, it was initially built to provide a single view of all the different accounts that a customer would have, because many of our customers have hundreds of different AWS accounts. So if they were using you know, our intrusion detection system, GuardDuty, or if they're using, you know, Macy, our, you know, data inspection and, and uh, um, classification tool and looking for open S3 buckets, looking for configuration errors that might be made that, that need to be changed so that users are not, you know, they're not putting their, their credentials up in an S3 bucket that you can then get an access and, you know, take advantage of someone's cloud account. So there all these different services, we needed a dashboard, a single place that a customer could see which, which accounts have which services enabled. And then, you know, also plug in third-party solutions that would plug into that to that security hub console. So we have CIS, all the CIS benchmarks that are available there. And so as a customer is, is looking at compliance and, you know, what's the regulatory framework that they have to comply with that is a business driver behind their security, they can plug that into security hub and, and scan their environment. So it's a lot of capability that we continue to add to make, you know, the customer's side of the responsibility model work and you know customers continue to ask AWS to develop security solutions in the way that we develop other services that are scalable and really easy to use like guard duty is just a single checkbox turn it on and it's mm-hmm. there so there's a lot of continual development that we do on that side 
Have you sort of found from customers, and I, you would probably be the best person to ask this, is there's still a lot of talk in the industry that I hear that, yes, just because uh, you've uh, adopted to cloud doesn't mean that you're secure because like you were sort of saying, like there's that demarcation where you guys sort of stop and that it's up to then an individual company to to secure themselves. Are you still finding that people have this fallacy that like they don't have to really do anything once they're sort of adopted to the cloud? Do you still feel that that's that's a thing and then perhaps maybe even less so now that you talked about the ecosystem that perhaps people there know that they've got a suite of vendors that they can sort of leverage and rely on to help secure them yeah i think if you think about that that initial comment of you know not thinking that they need to do anything let's just take one example of a pretty common one where where storage s3 simple storage service as as one of our storage services by default, when a customer creates a bucket and puts data in it, that that bucket is is not available publicly. It's closed to the public. So in order for a customer to share that data, they have to go in and turn it on and make it public. And it's hard to do. It's like multiple mm-hmm. steps and multiple yep. confirmation. Are you sure? Are you sure? And so then it's easy to put data up there that they well, I'll just throw it up here for a few minutes and then I'll come back and I'll I'll move it or something like that. So yeah, we we've you know, for a while we were like, well, you know, it's the customer's choice. They decided to open it, but we've, we've now put in place some settings in S3 that just say, close all public buckets, just close mm-hmm. them all. And so a lot of it comes down to maybe not as much ignorance to, I don't need security as much as maybe it's just a misconfiguration. It's a human error. Yep. And you know, that if, if we can continue to provide tools and like, like you said, the ecosystem is constantly improving on, solutions like that as well that are looking for, you know, common misconfigurations, their customers not following best practices, you know, the cloud security, uh, um, like if you think about like uh, Redlock, which became Prisma Cloud and Cloud Conformity, which Trend Micro bought now, and that's Trend Micro Conformity. Mm -hmm. Divi Cloud just got bought the other day. So there's a lot of these cloud security uh, and and, um, uh, workload protection type solutions that are looking at all these best practices. Mm-hmm. And I think that does help um, because, you know, putting automation behind preventing, you know, misconfigurations, I think, is the right way to do it because there's just so many different options available that yeah. it's, it's hard for humans to, you know, even if they did everything right, people make mistakes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you think uh, do you think it's sort of moving the needle now because you, you've got that help that's sort of there like they don't these people in terms of customers don't have to go like out looking for it so to speak like you've got i don't know 1200 was it um vendors so it's like they know that the resources and the help is there so they feel a little bit more sort of safe in the terms of that it's not going to be oh i need to go out and do thousands and thousands of hours of research because these guys have already provided it to me in terms of oh i know that i can go and speak to this particular vendor to help me with this particular problem and i don't have to go out and look for it myself so do you think that's sort of moving the needle in te- in terms of the security side of things now it's making it easier so i think i think sometimes yes but i think sometimes more options can even make it more difficult <laughs> I was just gonna right. say, yes, so okay, yep. Now we're kind of back to the same dichotomy, which is right. how many domains of security are there? How many do I need? And it's 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 not you know it's not unusual for an executive to say, well, how many different security solutions do I need? And mm-hmm. I usually come back with, well, what's the use case? Like, yes, depends on the application. Are you building an application that has you know users interacting with it, and there's PII data? I mean, then you need a database activity monitoring. You need you know like it, the the 
application or the use case defines the domains of security that are necessary. And the problem, I think the challenge that, that you know, we've tried to solve this one, and I don't think we've come close to solving it yet the way that it needs to be solved, but to really give guidance when a customer says, this is the application I'm building, and put a little bit of a decision tree in there, a couple questions, clarifying questions, filtering questions, to output then, well, th these are the risks that you need to be aware of, cross-site scripting, et cetera, whatever. Yep. You know, here are different ways that you can prevent these. Here's some recommended solutions. And I, and I think another challenge, you know, and I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I think another challenge that vendors have is, is not being honest with what they do or don't do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we do it all. Well, is that really true? It's not, it's not really true. And so, you know, where do customers learn what they need, I think is the question. And if the vendors are honest with them about their capabilities and their shortcomings, then that helps everyone. But I think we, we do need to give better guidance on what solutions customers need. And, and I think that will come out of some of the frameworks that we're building in my new project over time. But um, there's still a lot to do, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you sort of believe at the moment customers are sort of assessing each vendor? So you said that the more there are, the more uh, can also be problematic as well. So do you think people are sort of doing their due diligence in terms of vendor analysis or or they sort of um, coming back to you and your team asking you questions and then you're sort of doing it from a, a reverse engineering perspective of what they actually need or how they sort of performing going about getting the information that they need to perhaps invest in a particular vendor? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different answers to that question, but I think, you know, customers go to the vendors directly or they mm -hmm. they go to managed service providers if they don't like don't just somebody else manage it for me. Yep. Or maybe they're going to go to a systems integrator or, you know, a company that that all they do is is they have a, a staff of people that learn all the different cybersecurity products and they, you know, do professional services or managed services for customers. I think there's a lot of different ways people get the information today. and I, And I. I wish that I knew like mm -hmm. what was the one or two primary ways that people learn, because if I knew that, then I would be able to help them a lot better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there have been, I, I will say I've seen some, I've seen some really smart vendors, um, you know, that, that have, that have really done research to find out where their community goes for information. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, if you remember, um, um, Shoot, the name is escaping me here, but there, there's a SOAR vendor that um, recently got bought by Palo Alto, and this, it was called Demisto. And Demisto was built actually by uh, a former colleague of mine at McAfee, uh, Rishi Bhagava. He was the one of the founders, and they they just look, looked for where do customers go for this type of information for mm -hmm. automation and response. Where, what what are the communities? where people go to learn it. Mm -hmm. And they really did their due diligence and they went and they started to join those communities online and yeah. they started to contribute and they started to teach and educate. And I've seen vendors like, um, like Aqua, Aqua security does this too, where they do a lot of blogging and they do a lot of just educating on, you know, the, the industry. It's not even, they're not even doing product pitches. They're just educating on, on the industry. And I, I think it's that type of, of vendor that, that really creates a following and that, and they're really genuinely there to educate and help rather than just sell stuff. And so I'm always impressed by that. And I think that that's really a good way to, to, you know, help the community as it were. 
So how? So just curious on that again. So how did these guys go about finding their community? And so, like, did they were they just sort of asking where people were sort of talking online, or did they do some type of like intense uh, analysis on what was happening? Like, I'm just really curious on that because I think that's uh, it's an incredibly intelligent way to capture your audience. Yeah, they they actually started talking to a lot of customers and just saying, where do you learn about automation? Where do you learn about Sword? Where do you learn about DevOps? You know, and and uh, and then they did a lot of searches online for it and found these communities and these forums. And and then they started seeing a lot of activity on some of these forums. They're like, whoa, OK, this is this is interesting. What's this? And so then they just started contributing and writing and 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 put people on their staff to actually contribute to these forums. And I thought it was, you know, and it wasn't just, you know, products by the stuff. It was real challenges and asking for input and and building contribution. So Mm -hmm. I I think it was brilliant. You know, I I don't I don't think I've seen very many people do that, but Mm -hmm. I think it really worked for them. So yeah, that's yeah, that's just a very interesting way of um, capturing their audience. Um, Yeah, yeah. So Ben, I just realized that uh, we have been speaking for a while um, and uh, I definitely wanted to get into the details of everything we'd spoke about. And I wanted to really keep focus on that because I just found it really interesting. And I think that the conversations I'm having people in the market at the moment. So I wanted to definitely do a deep dive on this from your point of view in terms of what you guys are doing. So if people are wanting to reach out to you because they have a question that perhaps they didn't already ask you, how can they go about doing that? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or my email is benand at amazon.com. Um, either way is fine. Okay. Well, again, Ben, I really do appreciate your time and your insight. And I really, really enjoyed you sharing your knowledge on an area that I think definitely needs more of a spotlight. So thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate catching up with you. It's been a long time. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.